Hello, everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Surface. My name is Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I'm very interested in talking to interesting people who are performers. They're everything from CEOs to coaches to athletes to musicians to actors, anyone who considers himself to be a performer and is an expert at their craft. So what we will do is ask questions to dive deep and dig deep into their mindset, into their journey, into their story, what makes them unique, what makes them special, so that hopefully it can help you as you continue on your journey for development and as you go beyond the surface with yourself as well. I'm really excited to go beyond the surface with Jason Zone Fisher. Jason's an interesting guy. He's created a job for himself. He's been involved in theater. He's been involved in film, doing a documentary. And he currently lives in LA where he's pursuing both opportunities behind the camera and in front of the camera. So he's a host, he's a spokesman, he's a producer. He's really just a creative guy that represents different brands and has done different TV work. And he's a hustler. And you'll hear that throughout his story. Jason also has an interesting background because his family was in politics for most of his life. And he talks about how that influenced him and how he became a risk taker. He also will talk about his desire to live in LA where there's a lot of people trying to do a lot of things in LA, but how he embraced that and really has had a mindset that he's going to figure out a way to be successful and do what he wants to do. And one thing that I love about Jason is he's an optimist, but he also works his tail off. He hustles and you'll get a sense of how he's networked and how he's been able to create opportunities for himself rather than sit back and wait for those opportunities to come. So I think you'll really enjoy our conversation today. And I think there'll be a lot of takeaways for you. If you are in the beginning of your career, if you're in the middle, or even if you're at the end of your career, I think Jason's passion, his intelligence, and the way that he sees the world is just really interesting. So I present to you, Jason Fisher. Jason, tell me about uh, upbringing, uh, what it was like in outside Cleveland, Ohio, growing up, family, uh, that dynamic, and we'll go from there. Yeah, so I grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is the first suburb right outside of Cleveland, and I was a diehard Cleveland sports fan my entire life from uh, a really young age, which is pretty tough. It's made me a stronger person because I've dealt with a lot of heartache, a lot of close calls, but never quite the getting you know over the the mount to reaching the mountaintop. You can't use that anymore. I'm well, I I'm setting up my history here. Yeah, but you're like you're like uh, the Boston Red Sox fans who like they're like. Ooh. And no. Now they're, now they're now they're rich. Yeah, but Boston Red Sox fans were also fans of the Celtics who would win and the Patriots who would win or uh, you know the the Bruins. Cleveland fans lost everything. The Browns, the Cavs, the Indians in historic fashion everything. So yes, finally in 2016, the Cavs won it all and broke the curse and thank God they did because had they lost game 7 and the Indians go to the World Series and they lose game 7, I might not be here for this podcast right now. I think all, all Clevelanders would be. It's really, yeah. I think all of Cleveland would just be shut, shut out, well, shut you down. Know the new Cleveland crap sports town is. Uh, I don't know. People in Washington really think it's them, and I know they've had the Redskins, and the Redskins had some success, but that was a long time ago. Caps have never won. Yeah. The, the Bullets Wizards won once in the 70s. And, yeah. And since the Nats came along, they, they've been winning, but they can't get out of the... 
sure the first round so yeah that's interesting washington people think that they're pretty down right now it's, it's pretty become pretty cynical town in a lot of ways but don't worry they're gonna make washington great again so we're, oh yeah great yeah you're in good hands yeah, yeah don't worry so let's yeah, move sure. on from that and okay. you have some politics in your background and right it's gonna be a, a nicer story so why don't you tell me more about growing up in cleveland Okay, yeah, totally. So, big sports fan. I like leading with that, you know, because that that's part of my journey. 2016 being great with uh, Cleveland finally breaking the curse. But yeah, I grew up in a political family. My dad was a politician my entire life. He was Attorney General of Ohio, Lieutenant Governor. He ran for U.S. Senate. He ran for Governor. Um, he was a state rep, a state senator, all these different positions. And it was uh, it was an interesting. Um, childhood to say the least it was it was great it was a lot of fun but it was it was bizarre you know turning on television and seeing ads about my dad or seeing my dad and I playing basketball in a commercial to you know make him appeal to be a family guy or my whole life I had never seen a parade in person I had only been in parades like waving and so I would always record like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade because my dream was to just like watch a parade so I would just record it every year and just watch that parade over and over again did you have any understanding of fame back then um yeah a little bit you know what was cool was anytime we would go my family and I would go to like a big event I would expect my dad would be the one who would get up on stage and he would be speaking in front of everyone. If we were in a room with a thousand people, my dad was sort of the center of attention or my mom was too, my my parents. And I think that sort of affected me. I liked that. Or when we went to a restaurant, my dad was like working the room. Like he knew everyone there. People are coming up to him and saying hi, or he's shaking hands with everyone. And I think that clearly affected me, you know, given what I do for a living now and what I aspire to do. Uh, I never wanted to go into politics, but there were elements of campaigning that I really loved, which is meeting people all over the state. You know, for me, I really try to meet people all, all over the country. Um, affecting people in some way. Um, I was most proud of my dad watching him when he's up on stage. He's really funny and just like, you know, cracking jokes and making people laugh and kind of like owning the room the same way that a stand-up comedian would. It's really cool watching him in that setting. And I think that affected me and I wanted to do that. And, uh, why? I just like the feeling, I've always liked the feeling of making other people laugh, making other people smile. Um, just, making people have a good time and it's uh it's kind of a contagious feeling you know like you know when when i'm in a good mood i try and bring that energy towards other people and usually they feel it and it affects others and uh it's addicting talk about mom um, my, my, I feel like this is a therapy session here. Bit. Oh my God. We're literally, we're on a couch right now too it's with like, pillows. Yeah. Like we can go outside and walk around too if you want, or we could shoot hoops and do it, but I don't think the microphone will work well. No, no, it was good. It was good. I'm just going to lay on the couch while you uh, take notes with, on that pad. I don't know what you're talking you're about here. Me. Yeah. Now you're making it. It's like, yeah. people always say, say to me, they're like, oh, are you, a, are you a shrink? I'm like, no, I'm a stretch. They're like, oh, are you a therapist? No, I'm a coach. Oh. So I'm always... Uh, conscientious of that, but yeah, I mean, we're going, <laughs> we're going backwards to go forward. So, okay, I like so, it. So we do have to just go. This, the podcast is called Beyond the Surface. That's so true. 
you want to call it therapy? Go right ahead. But yeah, tell me about mom. Okay. So, uh, so my mom is actually the most outgoing person in my entire family. And I think most of my personality traits I get from my mom. I've talked about my dad and what he did in politics and looking up to parts of that. But, uh, my parents always joked and my dad always joked that my mom would actually would have been the better candidate, you know, uh, running for office because she is the most outgoing person. Everyone knows her. Everyone loves her. Um, she has a great personality that's, uh, people just want to be around her and, um, she's not afraid of, anything or anyone or any situation. There's a million stories about that. I mean, she's taught me how to put myself in the right place at the right time and make stuff happen. Uh, we, I was eight years old. We were at Bill Clinton's inauguration in Washington, D.C. in 1992. And my mom just grabbed my hand. She was like, follow me and just act like you belong and taught me how to do this. We snuck backstage and we were with Will Smith and Michael Jackson and Aretha Franklin and Tony Bennett and uh, the Fonz, Henry Winkler. And I I can rattle these names off because I have photos with all these people because I just followed my mom. This is like a high security event, the inauguration of Bill Clinton. We're just sneaking backstage at it. My mom taught me to do that when I was a little kid, and she always does that. My mom got me into the presidential motorcade, Obama and Biden. This was, I don't know, within the last six years ago, maybe. And you don't just like ask someone. She asked David Axelrod, who is one of, you know, a high level uh, staffer, one of Obama's advisors, who my family knows, asked him, Hey, do you think you could help Jason just get him in the motorcade? But, and he's like, Peggy, that's not how this works. And she, she makes stuff happen. She made it happen. I was in the, she just like, they threw me into the motorcade with the president. So I, I, I I'm, I understand why our paths didn't cross because I was at that Bill Clinton inauguration too. Oh, yeah. But that was not. <laughs> that was not in the cards. And I think about my upbringing and my parents. And I think there was an element of like, be, I don't want to say don't put yourself out there, but an element of like, be a little behind the scenes. Yeah, or yeah. Like, you know understand like don't put yourself out there in that way not to say that they weren't fearless or um go, you know go for things and make things happen but no i we would never have been the ones to go make all that happen so it's such an integral part for you and it's unique yeah um because you know I, in some ways i my dad was a, in a in a public figure too but he was never comfortable in that way yeah he was always comfortable you know being um speaking and communicating but he wasn't a work the entire room guy right and uh i always have sort of i want to be the one that's behind and then maybe i can have one conversation and go really in depth with that one person Mm. but i think it's it's hindered me in some ways because to your point there may have been lost opportunities along the way to connect with someone um so i think it's fascinating to hear that right from the get go, there was this concept of you got to make your own way. You got to push through, you got to put yourself out there. Um, and you got to go on stage, make people laugh or. Yeah, exactly. Just like put yourself in the right place, the right time, create your own luck. It's better to ask for forgiveness than it is for permission. Act like you belong, make it happen. Uh, and because of that, I think that's been the key to my success, having that mentality and also a belief in myself, knowing that, 
I do belong, knowing that I can do anything that I want to do, that I, I am good at this, that I do belong. And uh, if others don't recognize it, make them and just and do it. And, you know, my mom and I have spent many nights in jail together because of that. <laughs> Is that a joke? Yeah, that's a joke. We've not. <laughs> Siblings? Uh, yeah, I have a younger sister, Jessica, who's in Cleveland. Is she? So I'm going to label your dad, yourself, and your mom as extroverts. Is that fair? Uh, it is, although my sister is uh, less so. Um, she's, you know, unique, her own person. Um, I think it's uh, my sister's adopted, and I think some of it is genetic that I have, and some of it is learned. She can be like this, but I think. You know, she was put in a tough situation coming into a family with all of these extroverts on a big stage, uh, you know, public life and politics. And I think it was a harder adjustment for her uh, than anyone else in our family. Where are you on nature versus nurture? Where am I on it? I, I don't know. Uh, I, I think it's uh, really a combination of both. Uh, you, you know, I don't think one thing over another. I think there are some things that within me I have this this same gene that my mom does of just like whatever, let's do it. Like there's something instinctual in me that I'm not afraid of a moment or a situation and just like go for it. Do you feel that physically? Like when there's that opportunity, do you feel like a rush? Do you feel something like sometimes? Yeah. In my gut. And it happens so quickly. It's hard to recognize. I just, I just trust my gut and I know, uh, my middle name is zone and I, you know, pun intended, I, I get in the zone. I just feel it like click into another level of like, it's go time and it's a different level of focus. And I just kind of, Go make it happen. Now's the moment. Can you talk about the focus? Um, I just, you know, sometimes it, it's, it looks different every single time. Tuesday, I was at the American Football Coaches Awards in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. I was hosting this event, uh, Red Carpet for Pizza Hut, which, you know, we can get into later, kind of like what I was doing there. Um, but... Uh, I had to do a Facebook Live for about 45 minutes straight. Just me on camera to Pizza Hut's Facebook fans, which they have 28 million Facebook fans, which is insane, I right? I that. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Nothing against Pizza Hut. Just yeah, 28 just, million people love pizza that much. Yeah, I think they wanted a coupon or something. Who knows? Well, you know, but yes. So I'm uh, going live to potentially 28 million people. They're not obviously now on or tuned in, but that's the, the reach. And 45 minutes, just me and just different coaches coming down the red carpet. But in between, there's gaps where I just need to stretch. And I, you can watch this thing. I just keep talking and talking and talking. I sort of, I joked afterwards, I blacked out. Like, I don't, I don't even know what the hell I was doing or saying. I just was in the zone where I had to be focused and on. And I only remember bits and pieces and little moments from it because I was in this other level of focus where things were, uh, slowed down for me in a sense. You hear athletes say that all the time. It's just like, it's hard to describe what, what that feels like. I just, it's go time. I'm on, I'm focused and I'm able to block everything else out and just be present a little bit. There's research on it. It's called flow. Yeah. It's called the flow state. Yeah. This guy from Florida state university studied this and has made it a life mission to study the zone. Mm, Cool. And there's a book called flow. Cool. The guy's name is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. I'm not going to spell it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he talks about, Things tend to slow down. It usually happens when we are in some sort of challenge or competitive environment. Um, and 
yeah, the blacking out per se of like, you're just so in the moment that you're not taking that time to be super reflective. Sure. You're just in it. Um, so it's a good book. It's worth a read for anybody who's, who's felt that, which most of us have. Cool. Um, and it's, it's worth looking at. So, cool. So you're growing up in Ohio. You're growing up in somewhat of a public light. Um, mm. Any negatives that came with that as, as a kid? Um, yeah, it was tough. I mean, uh, I lived in Cleveland. The state capital was in Columbus, Ohio. It's about two and a half hours away. And there was many times that, you know, I felt that I was sharing my, uh, parents with the state of Ohio. Uh, my dad was as attorney general worked in Columbus, Ohio, and we lived in Cleveland. So Monday morning he would leave, he'd be in Columbus and he'd come back Thursday night or Friday morning. So it was a lot of phone conversations during the week catching up. So with that is a lot of missed, uh, games or plays or performances or things like that. And, uh, that's tough. And then also during campaigns, when a politician runs for office, their whole family runs for office and it's for two years. So it's really, it takes a lot out of, um, not just the candidate, but, uh, his his or her spouse and the children and, and the whole family, and you're so committed. And my dad, uh, in 1998, he ran for governor of Ohio, and he lost the closest election in Ohio in, I don't know, 100 years. I forget the exact stat, but it was insanely close. And what like, was that like for you? That was really hard. I was 14 years old. I was a freshman in high school. And I mean, I put everything into this. Everyone in my family put everything into this, and we thought we were going to win. And then he lost it really in heartbreaking fashion by a percentage point or, and, uh, and, and it was tough for a 14 year old to take that, uh, and deal with that loss. And I, I lost a lot of my motivation because after that, well, then I go back to school and I'm in like, you know, mythology class. I like, I didn't get to see the point. I, I it was like, it didn't matter. And I remember I've always written in a journal my entire life. And I found a journal entry from around then just basically questioning what is the point of like learning about the Pythagorean theorem? Like, I don't need this. This isn't important. What I've just been dealing with, like this is real life stuff. And, and I just didn't see the point in a lot of what I was doing. And as a 14 year old grappling with like real life things like that, like, Oh, now my dad is unemployed. Like what's he going to do next? And, and we just lost this thing. It's, it was uh, it was hard on all of us emotionally to invest so much of your time, your effort, your energy for two years and come up so short. You know? Any idea where the writing it down came from? Um, I, I think some of that I've seen my dad write a lot in, in journal. I think some of it is therapeutic. Uh, I get my thoughts out. And a lot of it is there's something within me that is a uh, a documentarian. I've made documentary films, as you know. I've always, since I was a kid, had a camera in my hand. Um, I love taking photos. I like capturing and documenting life. Um, and I think writing is a part of that, too. It's all part of just uh, documenting and remembering all of the experiences that I have in life. I've got a pretty awesome life and I love it. And for the ups and the downs, there's way more ups. I just like remembering every step of the way so that I have that. It's, it's probably, you know, the question of like, if, if there's a fire, what's the one thing you would grab? I would grab, you know, my photos, my, my computer and, or, uh, and my journals that those are probably the most valuable things to me because they're my memories. Yeah. Well, there's, there's something really cool there, which is 
we're going to get into this. I don't want to go deep dive into this, but like millennials, right? And generation, I think a lot of it's bullshit, but that's for another day. <laughs> but the one thing that they are finding in research is that we value experience more than our previous generations. Mm-hmm. And I think as you, as you talk about your upbringing, there's a high value on experience. Yeah. Whether it's the presidential motorcade, um, it's the experience seeing your dad speak, it's the experience of winning or losing an election, um, but the experiences are, are highly valuable for you. Yeah. Can you take us to Syracuse, which is where our paths actually crossed? Um, yeah. You know, maybe it's good that you didn't meet me when, uh, when Clinton was elected, because I think I was a little better of a human in college. Maybe, maybe you could argue <laughs> the opposite. I like to say I peaked in eighth grade, so you didn't get to see my peak. Oh man, I'm sorry, I missed yeah, that. But uh, yeah. take me take me to the decision to go to Syracuse, uh, yeah, study there, and uh, yeah, just walk me through that. Well, when I was in high school, so growing up in Cleveland, outside of the growing up in politics and being a big sports fan. I loved performing, and I knew that's what I wanted to do for a living. Starting when I was in the fourth grade, I was in—I acted professionally. I was in uh, plays, commercials, TV movies. Um, I did it as much as possible while still being a pretty normal kid in Cleveland, Ohio. And I—I knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to act. I wanted to perform. And then when I was in high school. I auditioned for a new show they were having on the local NBC affiliate called Browns Blitz. It was a Saturday morning kids show about the Cleveland Browns. The Browns left and became the Baltimore Ravens. So for five or so years, there there was no professional football team in Cleveland. And in 1999, when a new franchise started, they wanted to attract a younger audience who didn't grow up with football to get them interested in the team. So they thought this kids show would be a good way. So they had an open casting call, thousands of kids auditioned, and I got picked as one of the hosts of this show. And it was a blast. I mean, and it introduced me to the world of uh, hosting and broadcasting. And being a diehard sports fan, this was a dream job for me. For two seasons, this show was on the air. I got to be on the field for the games. I got to hang with the players on their off days, you know, do Madden challenges where each week I'd play a different professional football player in a game of like Madden uh, and challenge them. I did all these amazing things. And this is these were experiences I would pay to do. I was getting paid to do them and be on TV while I was in high school. I was like, this is what I want to do for a living. I can be myself or an exaggerated version of myself on on television. Uh, This is it. This is what I want to do. So when I was looking at schools, it was easy to narrow it down to schools that have really strong communications programs and schools. Uh, And Syracuse, the Newhouse School, is one of, if not the best in the country. So I was looking at Syracuse, Northwestern, and USC. Northwestern is a great communication school. Uh, It's really more journalism and print journalism than anything else. And USC, I've always wanted to live in LA my entire life. And I thought that would be cool and kind of just already be in the industry and in the biz. But I decided on Syracuse because of all the programs, I felt like it was the closest to what I wanted to do. I love the size of the school. I love that sports was a huge part of the culture of the campus there. And it was nice that uh, people think that Syracuse it sounds very far from Cleveland, Ohio but you can hop in your car and it's a 5 hour drive it's pretty close so it had all the ingredients and it was amazing and that's why I decided to go there to pursue this Browns Blitz experience and turn it into a career when people think about the Newhouse School I think the first thing that I think of is the Mike Tirico's, Bob Costas's of the world Yeah. so uh, play by play, sports broadcasting, totally I've interviewed a play-by-play guy for this podcast. Mm, humble brag. <laughs> I've interviewed 
I've interviewed uh, sports personalities, uh, right? Sports writers. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting because I've hit on some of their perspectives. And yeah. Their stories uh, are different from yours, I think, in part because of the generation of TV coming into play. Um, but I'm curious for you because one of the reasons I went to Syracuse was when I used to play video games as a kid, I would do play-by-play. Mm-hmm. So we'd be yeah. like NHL, 92. Yeah, yeah. And my friends would hate me. Love it. Because I'd be like, you know, Jerry Roenick, he shoots his scores! And yeah. like, my friends would be like, you are so annoying. Um, was this when you were peaking in eighth grade or was this before? Where on the scale is this? Is this you at your best? This is like, <laughs> yeah, probably, probably around the same time. I mean, I Oh, wow. <laughs> I probably from the time I was eight years old to 18. I don't All right. know. Like, yeah, yeah. But, so part Did you have girlfriends? No. Yeah, I could tell. I could. <laughs> okay. Right. I don't know how to talk to girls until I went to college. All right, got it, got it. still you know, shaky. But, yeah, right, right. Um, <laughs> so for me, Syracuse, I love the idea of having that as an option. Yeah. Because I thought I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. Mm-hmm. And so I can I – can, that resonates with me. The thing I'm a little unsure of in your story is like – You've got this performance side of you from the time you're, I think you said four years old or whatever it is. Yeah. Fourth grade, fourth but you know, you're sort of listening. That's all right. Fourth grade. It's okay. Years old. Come on, get in that flow state, lad. You're, you're, you're yeah. nine years old. Yeah, all right. So the time you're nine <laughs> years old, um, you got this performance side of you, but you started this podcast by talking about sports. Yeah. I'm curious for you, you end up at Syracuse. Did you not want to be a sports broadcaster? Like that, because you said the Browns Blitz, but mm-hmm. to me, that's different. That's like, is that sports broadcasting or like what? It is and it isn't. I did want to be a sports broadcaster uh, or I was interested in it. But as I took all of the classes, I learned a few things. I learned it's hard to be a fan when you're going through these courses on being an impartial broadcaster. And Syracuse at the time didn't emphasize so many kids went there wanting to be the next Bob Costas or Marv Albert or Dick Stockton or Mike Tirico, Sean McDonough, all these great alums from Syracuse, these sports broadcasters. And I think Syracuse then, they've changed since then, um, shied away from fully encouraging and embracing that. They were like, we're going to give you a traditional broadcast journalism background so you learn how to do the news. And then if you really feel uh, that this is what you want to do, sports broadcast will offer those courses to you junior, senior year. And it's a path, um, but be careful. It's, It's hard to do that. And... The news is important, but it's depressing. And I didn't like that because it was, as I was doing it in school, murders and house fires and car crashes. And I was like, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news. I want to show my personality. And the sports broadcasting, too, it was at times difficult to show my personality. And I'm a fan. That's why I love sports. And there wasn't really a lane uh, clearly identified for a sports fan to be on television. It had to be like what you were doing, the X's and O's and the play-by-play. So it was all, everything I learned at Syracuse was great and valuable and close to what I wanted to do, but not quite. And I'm I'm a fan, and my career has been turning my passion for sports uh, and and for life, my fandom and my personality and sense of humor into a career, telling stories that are fun and energetic and compelling and uh, less about the X's and O's and the the analysis of a game. So many people can do that more. Hey, I I try to be relatable. Like I'm you, I live vicariously through me and these crazy experiences that I've had, that I'm having. Very cool. So you graduate Syracuse and 
I know a little bit about your journey after Syracuse, but tell us about yeah, so what you decided to do next. Everyone was graduating from school, I remember, uh, and people start getting jobs, and especially in my major, people are submitting their tapes to like small markets in you know the middle of nowhere to be a one-man band, a producer, editor, shooter uh, on the news. And I was like, I don't, oh my God, what am I going to do? Everyone's doing this. I don't want to do that. Well, I thought uh, a good way to avoid getting a real job would be to make a documentary film. I thought it'd be a nice little project I could work on to ease my transition out of college into the real world. And um, my buddy, who you're also friends with from from Syracuse, John and Trader, um, we are both big basketball fans. This was a few months before graduation. He's from the Bay Area, a big Warriors fan. I'm from Cleveland, a big Cavs fan. We drove home to Cleveland uh, because through some random connections I had, I was able to get courtside seats to a Cavs game uh, between the Cavs and the Warriors. So we drove five hours to Cleveland, just the two of us, to go to this basketball game. And it just so happened that my dad, who had been out of politics for a while, was being announced as the lieutenant governor candidate with this guy, Ted Strickland, for, uh, for, for governor. He, my dad was being named on the ticket. And before the game, I said, hey, John, we're just going to go to this press conference, this event. And for me, it was kind of normal. I grew up in that, that world of politics. And John didn't know anything about that. And he was fascinated by this event that was going on. And my dad up on the stage being announced. And, and at this game, we went for a basketball game. But the whole game, John was talking about this political stuff that he had just witnessed and how fascinating it was. And it was like no big deal to me. And after the game, he still wouldn't shut up about it. I pulled out a tape that I made in 1998 when I was 14. I uh, talked about my dad you know, ran for governor. I made a documentary about it just with my family camcorder. I shot, I don't know, 30 hours of footage, and I remember hooking it up to my TV VCR and pr- pressing play and record to edit it you know, the way that I did. And I didn't know what I was doing. I had no equipment, no experience. And we watched some of that, and we were both blown away, actually, by how good it was because of the access that I had because it's, it's so intimate. It's with the candidate at home. And that's something you had never seen before. And it both kind of dawned on us that like, uh, this is maybe a unique opportunity right after graduating. We could tell this story of a really important race in Ohio. Um, the film, well, I'll get to that, but in Ohio, the history of presidential elections, only one president has ever been elected without winning the state of Ohio. And my dad and Ted Strickland running for governor, Lieutenant governor, If they won in 2006, that would pave the way for the presidential election in 2008 to be much easier for that party to to win that state. So really, the road to the White House is paved through Ohio, and we could clearly show the implications that this race my dad was in would have nationally on the entire country. Now, I mean, I I can remember you talking about looking around and seeing the impact your dad had on the audience um, when they're laughing because yeah. he's on stage. But now you're, it's like dawning on you. It's like, holy crap. Now it's not just the people in that room. It's not just the state of Ohio who you felt like you shared your dad with. Now it's like this could actually pave the way for 
The country. The country, exactly. It's like, who's going to be president in 2008? Uh, there's going to be a new president. We don't know who the candidates even are yet. But whoever wins the, the state house in Ohio, if a Democrat wins, uh, it's going to be much easier for a Democrat to be elected uh, president in 2008, or, or to, excuse me, to win the state of Ohio. But then if you follow that theory, no president has ever been elected, only one without winning Ohio. You kind of need Ohio. It, it, you can follow that very clearly this race has huge national implications. So John and I, we decided we should make a film about this and do this. And we bought a subscription to Netflix. Every night we watched a different political documentary. We took notes. We put together uh, an executive summary because we had to raise money for this. We borrowed $5,000 from our families to buy a camera and audio equipment just to get started. But then after that, we started raising money while we were filming, while we were building this. And we were able to raise over $200,000, mainly in $5,000 increments before there was a Kickstarter. We shot 250 hours of footage. We edited it down to a 90 minute film and long story short after about a year and a half or so two years we had a finished film and it did very well and it was in a lot of film festivals and screenings it got a distribution deal um, and it was amazing learning experience and it was way more work than we ever realized and I always say the key to our success was being naive. Had we known how much work this was going to be, what we were getting ourselves into, we probably would not have done it. But given that we just kind of took it one day at a time, one step at a time, we weren't really, we were too dumb to be afraid of what was to come. We just kind of like learned as we were going. And because of that, we were successful and it was an amazing learning experience. It was better than going to film school because we actually did something. We made it. And it was a, a great project right out of school. And it's amazing I, it's about my family. It's about what it's like to grow up and live in politics. And, uh, it's really cool that I was able to make something like that. I'm really proud of. And it's also something that my family will have forever that I know like my grandkids one day will be able to get to know my dad and my grandfather who's since passed away, who's a part of the film. And it's really cool. There's two things that I'll say. First of all, I'll give you a quick plug for swing state. Uh, I watched it. Yeah. Yeah, the big takeaway for me is like the family you mentioned earlier, like the person doesn't run, it's the whole family running. Mm -hmm. And you could really feel that in your documentary, which is, you know, the I don't want to say the toll, uh, that might be too strong of a word. No, but it is, yeah. Head, right? Like like the toll or the sacrifice or the energy that the family has to put in and and the ups and downs and the emotion that comes with that. I think most people don't have a good grasp of that they just see the candidate um and then the second piece is is what you're talking about which is you graduate from college and i think look i think a lot of people have advice for college graduates for me like it's just go do something like go do something mm -hmm. uh, i one of my mentors said to me is like go move somewhere go go try something new like because you you are naive and you don't have any responsibilities yeah so like uh, what a great experience and, and I look at what you did and I think it, those are the, the things that I look back on. I'm like, that's really logical to me. Uh, but at the time when we're in it and kids are getting jobs on Wall Street or mm -hmm. with consulting firms or going to law school or whatever they're doing, like, yeah, I can remember that feeling of like, nope, I need a job. I just need to be making money because right. I've been in college for four years or whatever yeah. amount of years people are in college for. Sure. So. Um, but I look, I look back and I really believe that. I think 
the naivete that you talked about is the biggest blessing you can have because totally. how many lessons learned you ran a business, right? You ran, you raise money, you had to budget it. You had to come up, you had to organize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then report back to our investors. Right. We had to deal and, with financers and, and distributors. And it's a successful, it's not a failure because it's also in line with your sort of life purpose, which is to document uh, and make and move people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, like, man, that's like one of the coolest things that I saw someone do yeah. after college. So I give, give you a bunch of credit for that. I appreciate it. Take me from there though. So do you move? So you live at home for that period? Yeah. So we, we had to document my family. So my buddy, John and I, he moved in with my family. We lived at home while we were filming it in Cleveland, but traveling on the road nonstop for, for the documentary. And then, uh, we did all of the editing and post-production of the film in New York city. So I lived in New York for about a year, year and a half while we were actually piecing it together and making it. Um, and then after that, I basically lived out of a suitcase for an entire year uh, once the film was done because I was traveling from film festivals to screenings. And at the same time, you talked earlier about leveraging things. Uh, I was able to parlay this film and this experience into a job as the national youth correspondent for CBS News during the 2008 presidential election. I was at the conventions, the Democratic convention, the Republican convention, all of the presidential and vice presidential debates, the inauguration, any big event, CBS News sent me around the country to do fun pieces, like almost Daily Show style pieces, stuff with uh, young voters on college campuses and be there and get a fresh perspective as this youth correspondent. I'm, I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. Like, when people are in college, big part of them being in college is trying to figure out what am I going to do. Mm-hmm. Did you have a vision for yourself in college of like, this is what my job is going to be or this is the dream I have? Or was it much more of like, let's just pursue things and see what happens? Like, yeah. how did you how did you go about it? Yes and no. I've always had many dream jobs. Like, I would love to be a late night talk show host. I would love to host NBA Inside Stuff. Uh, you know, with a moderate shot. That was my favorite show as a kid. I would love to. I, I, there's a lot of jobs that I would be fulfilled. And and when I graduated from college, my dad said to me, "Congratulations. Now what? What are you going to do with the rest of your life?" And I said, "You know, I." What I want to do hasn't been invented yet. I'm going to invent my own dream job. And I didn't know exactly what that meant, but I did mean it. And I, I think I've been able to do that in my career. I've had some crazy jobs and crazy opportunities that we can get into. And it's hard to describe. And I've just taken it one thing at a time. And I've learned that work begets work. And one opportunity has usually led to another and I have created this insane career where I get paid to do things that people would pay to do. I've had so many bucket list type experiences, uh, meeting insane people, going to the coolest events, traveling all over the country, all over the world. Uh, and my job has been to capture those moments and those experiences and share them with others in photos and videos. When people ask you what you do, yeah. what's your answer? Depends who asks me. Uh, I really. ask you, what do you do? I mean, what I do is I, I'm a television host, I'm a television producer, I'm a documentary filmmaker, I'm a brand spokesman, um, and the through line through everything that I do is my, my energy, my passion, my sense of humor, and uh, my desire and ability to tell stories. 
So it's much more about who you are than what you do. It is. And it's, it's much more about how I do things than what I do. Because how I do things really shows people who I am much more than like a resume of what I've done. So um, when I was living in San Francisco at the time, this was what were 2009 to 2011. Mm-hmm. I had an MBA draft website. Yeah. And I came down to LA because there were a bunch of guys working out. And I called you up and I said, I need... I don't. I need some guys to film. I'm getting to interview these guys, and you and your buddy came. Yeah. And, uh, and and we filmed some stuff. But one of my biggest memories, I think, I crashed on your couch. There was actually an earthquake. I remember <laughs> like waking up in the middle of the night and be like, "Jason's ready." Like, yeah, it's nothing. It's just LA. <laughs> it's an earthquake. Yeah, whatever. Uh, the couch was shaking. Uh, <laughs> but uh, my biggest memory, besides the earthquake, <laughs> was you showing me your Excel spreadsheet. Oh yeah. And I was just like, this guy is insane. That's my reaction. I was like, yeah. I, you know, and, and interestingly enough, and to show you how consistent you still are, is we were talking before this podcast and I told you about a stand-up comedy act and I literally see you go over and write down the name. So you're still documenting and writing and super organized, maybe neurotic or anal or whatever <laughs> the word you want to OCD, use. OCD, yeah. Yeah, but tell, for me, sure. tell me about the spreadsheet and – what that did for you. I don't know if you still do that. And mm-hmm. just give me some perspective on that. Yeah. Well, after, um, after that whole experience with swing state and the film and working with CBS news, I decided to move out to LA. My role sort of evaporated with the CBS news youth correspondent after Obama's inauguration. They didn't really need a youth correspondent anymore. So I decided I've always wanted to live in LA um, I love visiting there. I love the warm weather growing up in Cleveland, going to college in Syracuse. I needed to like thaw out. So I was like, I'm going to try living here now. Well, just see, we'll see how long it lasts, but I want to give it a try. And I moved out here to Los Angeles. It's been eight years now, which is insane. And I knew maybe 10 or 15 people. So I put those names on a spreadsheet and I spent the first you know, week or two just meeting with those people and asking, telling them my story about me, what I want to do. It helped that I had made a film so I, it wasn't just talk. It was also, li- listen, like here's what I want to do, but I can make stuff happen. It was- you say these people, mm-hmm. are these some might have went to college with you or are these – People that are in Hollywood? like Both, yeah. People that I knew from college, but also uh, people who are in the business, in entertainment, in various capacities and fields. And I just reached out to them. And, and really, my only ask after telling them about myself and learning more about them was, is there one or two people you know who think you think I should meet with uh, that would be helpful for me to know and for them to know me that I exist and that I'm here? Did you do that via email? Did you do that after the meeting? Like- I would start, uh, you know, obviously all these things via email and just ask for coffee for a few minutes, and then in person I would ask those things. But I was very organized and diligent about following up, and I feel like you know so many so times. Would you ask them to follow up? Like, hey, I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, if there's one or two other people that you think would be beneficial for me to connect with, I would love to meet them. I would ask them in person, but then I would follow up again with that, uh, 
almost immediately. And there's a lot of lessons I've learned in this. I've thought about writing a book or teaching a course on networking because I've, I've learned when you move to Los Angeles, you can take an acting class, a hosting class, uh, a directing class, an improv class, a stand-up class, all these different skills, but no one teaches you how to network. And you can be the most talented person in the world, but if no one knows that and no one knows who you are, it doesn't matter. You got to get your foot in the door is more than half the battle. And this spreadsheet is just for me a way to keep organized where that list was 10 or 15 people and I asked to meet with, hey, is there anyone I should meet with? It turned into 20, turned into 40, turned into 80, turned into 160. And I still have spreadsheets for New York and LA, two different sets that have I don't know, over 800 people on it. And I don't use it quite as much today now that I'm a little more established and I know people and relationships change, but I still, even today, I go back to it from time to time. If I've got a down period, a down hour or so, and just glance at it like, oh my God, I haven't talked to that person in a long time. But when I first was building who I am and a life and a career in Los Angeles, I used it all the time and I kept it organized with a column of who the person is, a column of how I know that person, who introduced me, um, when did I last meet them? When did I last email them? So I know how long it's been not to, uh, you know, uh, annoy people and a column of like, what did they say they would do? They said they would introduce me to this person. So when I follow up and say, Hey, you know, it's been a while. You said you'd introduce me to so-and-so. Would you still feel comfortable making that happen? And it's really all about the follow-up more than anything else, because so many people are good at step one, but when it comes to following through, I see this all the time. It's like you meet someone, you exchange a business card, and then that's the end of it. Immediately, I email that person. The next day, I email that person if I get their business card. Because even if it leads to nothing right away, I found that six months from now, if I do need to reach out to that person or need something or have a question or want to follow up, I can respond to that same thread and that history is there of, oh yeah, as opposed to if you we met, you give me your business card, and I don't follow up with you until eight months from now, I'm like, oh my God, I'm up for a job at this network, and I need to contact this person, and I'm like, hey, remember me? It, it's, it seems like too out of left field, so that's a big lesson I've learned is follow up right away um, because even if it doesn't, you don't know why later when it becomes clear, you've already established There's something. There's so much to chew on there, and... Uh, what I can relate it to is my very first client that I had when I, when I started my private practice came from my aunt who knows nothing about sports. When I say she knows nothing about sports, like I don't think she knows who LeBron James is. Okay. So that's impressive. Yeah, You like are like, I don't want to know that person, but <laughs> she was like, I have a friend who's a tennis player and she said, I was telling her about what you do. And she's like, oh, I got to meet Brian. Number one, like people think of networking as being like, I'm going to go to this mixer mixer. And like your networking starts with your network. Mm -hmm. Like, and people I think take for granted just their own personal network. Those are your advocates. Those are people that love you. Uh, your friends and family, at least they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. And A, you, your friends and family need to know like who you are and what you do. And B, that, hey, you really need their help because who's going to help you more than those people? And then the other thing that is you hammered home is like the follow-through and the commitment to follow-through mm-hmm. and not just doing it 
because it might help you, but because you might be able to help them. And that to me, I, you're right. I think I see so many people that are like, yeah, let's grab a coffee or let's grab a drink. And I'm like, okay, but you're not actually going to reach out to me and, and really do it. So, right. um, it's, it comes back to the naivete of just doing, going, yeah. like being active. And I think that's so valuable. Totally. Talk about your mindset when you're on air. Um, yeah. Cause you've now, you talked about Facebook live and 20 some million with pizza hut. And I'm sure you go for auditions mm-hmm. um, and you're constantly having to make yourself vulnerable, uh, be fearless in a sense. But walk me through a, how you prepare yeah. for them and then B what your mindset is when you're performing. Yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, right now it's Friday, Wednesday of this week. I had a huge audition for a new game show. Um, and I was, I mean, my week was crazy. Basically Monday I was in Melbourne, Australia. I flew from Melbourne to Sydney, Sydney to LA, which is like a 15 hour flight landed at 7am. I had an 8.30am flight from LA to Dallas, Dallas to Tampa, got off the plane and went straight to the college football national championship game, which was incredible. The next morning I had a 7am flight to Nashville, Tennessee, um, for the college football awards that I was talking about that I did the red carpet and and presented an award during the show, which is really cool. And Wednesday morning I had a 7am flight from Nashville cross country to Los Angeles. I landed and went straight to this huge audition uh, for this game show. Uh, Pretty crazy three days uh, of travel and experience. And um, that entire flight, when I should have been sleeping, I was focused on a script and, and learning it and really familiarizing myself as much with the material that I was had in advance to prep for this audition. So I tried, same as like when you're in school and you're kind of cramming for an exam or a test, tried to just know the material, learn it. Some things I wanted to memorize um, and a great trick I learned when I was a kid acting for memorization is, you know, read it over and over again, but then I actually uh, write the lines out. I write them while I say it. And there's something about it that I'm both seeing it with my eyes, I'm saying it out loud, so I'm hearing it, and I'm physically writing it. The fact that I'm doing that with the lines, all of those senses are working, it helps the the language stick with me. There was a Harvard study that found that goals are are 10 times more likely to happen if you write them down. Yeah. Because um, it's sticky and it, it, you make it tangible. Yeah, interesting. So there, I, your methods, whether you knew it or not, yeah. there's some science behind them. That's amazing. Um, so it's pretty cool. That's all great. Right, so that's what you do to prepare. So, so I did all that to prepare, but then I got to a point where – you know, I don't really get nervous, but before a big audition or a big performance, I do get that sensation, the butterflies in my stomach, um, because I know this is the moment, you know, um, and it's go time. So it got to a point where, okay, I was prepared and I don't want to over prepare. I want to also be, for me, I have to be comfortable and I have to be relaxed and I can't show nerves because I'm a host or a performer on camera and that would affect my performance. So, I prepared as much as I could, but then it's also about, it's kind of like before an exam in school, all right, you've done your preparation. Now you got to rest. Now you got to sleep. Now you got to take care of yourself. I had to kind of do that and, and let go and just focus on being in a good mood with a good attitude and 
be fun because a lot of my audition that I had was about ad lib and personality and energy. So I had to just transition from cramming and focus and memorization to just my vibe and my energy and just putting out good vibes and being in a good mood and trying my best to be funny and be quick. And I, I crushed the audition. It went really, really well. So many things are out of my control now. Who knows if I'll get this show or not. Um, but I felt great about it because I think I did a great job of both preparing for it and then shifting to a place of, uh, just a good attitude, a good spirit and being, focused and able to recognize the room, the situation, reading people. And this is where the podcast, to me, like there's such correlation between everyone I interview. Yeah. Preparation matters. You want to be neurotic, a perfectionist, humble, uh, whatever you want to use to describe preparation, it matters. Mm. I'm not here to knock preparation. But everybody knows that. Like that's not some secret, like you need to learn your lines. You need to, you know, make sure that you know what you're talking about. Like for my world, no athlete doesn't go to practice, right? No athlete doesn't watch film. No athlete, like you, that's baseline shit. It's, it's like, you have to do that. What most athletes struggle with is the performance mindset and getting out of being neurotic or perfectionist or humble and getting into being adaptable, being malleable, being in the moment, improvising. And to me, this is where theater or the arts or uh, business like CEOs, or this is my world where the best understand that when it's time to perform, it don't matter how much you slept. It doesn't matter what you ate. It doesn't matter. None of that matters anymore. Now it's like, I did what I could, but now I'm here to just perform and Mm -hmm. compete. Mm -hmm. And that's why you can see athletes sometimes who uh, are hurt or um, have something traumatic happen and they can still go out and compete because they're saying, when I step in, I have this belief in myself and I will talk to myself to remind myself that I'm capable of doing this, but it's really about in that moment, almost being narcissistic Mm -hmm. Uh, and narcissism gets a a bad, you know, people think narcissists are, are, are not ideal, but if you look at it, the best are neurotic in their preparation and they are really going to do everything they can to prepare. But when they step in, there's an element of narcissism to them. When Steph Curry crosses half court and thinks that he can make a shot from half court on that's narcissistic. Mm -hmm. Like, and for, um, you know, a pitcher in the major leagues, when they step on that mound, for them to believe like I'm going to strike out Albert Pujols, it's a little narcissistic. Mm-hmm. And I think as you tell your story, one of the things that's so cool is from a young age, your parents taught you, yeah, just go for it. Mm-hmm. Like, and you probably had no reason to believe that you could get into that motorcade. Your mom, there's no logic behind that. If someone said, what is the percentage of you getting into that motorcade and being with Obama People would be like, that's not happening. But there's a fearlessness of going for it mm-hmm. that is really valuable. And I think that applies to everybody in all walks of life because so often we let our inner self-critic to say, no, dude, that's probably not going to happen. So right. don't do it. And that's when I think many athletes are not at their best. I think that's probably when many actors are not at their best. A CEO who says, yeah, I, there's value in – 
in having that performance mindset. Totally. And, and there's a difference between being confident and cocky. Um, I try to be humble, but I am totally confident in myself and my abilities. And the thing I've struggled with the most in my career, in my time in LA is patience is I'm ready. I'm confident in my abilities. I'm ready for the next level and I'm constantly ready for the next level. And I keep taking steps forward, but not at the pace that I would like because what is the dream for you now. What, what, what is that next level? The, the next level is, I, I mean, I'm living the dream. I just want to keep doing what I'm doing on a bigger and bigger scale. Like I've hosted television shows on the Big Ten Network. Do you know what channel number that is? No. Maybe you do, but, but no. I mean, like I want to host television shows, work with brands, produce TV shows just on a, a bigger scale. And I want you to know my name when you know the the average person to know who I am not because it's a narcissistic fame thing it's because it comes with that next level of success and I really I don't care about the fame I just want to be successful enough it it opens doors and I've found in my profession in my career when you are a quote-unquote name it opens even more doors and more opportunities because a lot of television shows want a name, want a more known commodity. And right now I use it to my advantage that some people know of me. I always say right now I've got the experience without the exposure. Like I've got a lot of experience, but I'm not a household name yet. And I think there's uh, a really pure thing about that, that I'm doing what I'm doing, not for fame and recognition. I'm doing it because I love doing it. And I think I'll always be like that. But, uh, that's the passion, the passion piece. Yeah. Give me the purpose piece. I mean, that, that's an excellent question. I think the purpose is I, I've always, it's like, I don't even have a choice. Like some people have said to me, um, in the past, wow, it's like, I commend you for taking chances and, and doing this as a career or profession. Like that's so cool of you. You've, you've risked a lot and it's, uh, you know, what you do for a living is unstable. And for me, I don't think I deserve any sort of uh, accolades. There's never been a choice since I was a kid. I've always known this is what I was going to do. I felt that this is my purpose is to perform in various aspects, to try and make others laugh, to make them smile, to entertain in some ways. And it's not even a choice. It just feels like this is this is who I am. And and I was just in Australia on this vacation. And I was saying, you know, I wonder if I was if I had just been born in this like remote place where we were, what I would be doing. And we went on this uh, tour to the like our, the Daintree Rainforest, and we had an incredible tour guide. It was really funny. And I was like, you know what? I might, this might be me if I had been born there. I might be like this incredible tour guide who's just like hosting a tour every single day, making people laugh and like hosting my own mini show, but I'd be the best at that. And I feel like no matter where I am in the world, whatever situation I'm in, this is me, who I am, what I'd be doing. And I just feel very fortunate that I was born where I was and I live where I am and that my aspirations are, you know, really, really high because I feel that I can achieve anything that I put my mind to. So I think that's a great way to, to finish this up. And I want to give you the floor to just promote yourself in any way <laughs> okay. you want to. So um, how can people find you on social media? And you know, if someone wants to connect with you, what's, what's the best way for them to do that? 
Um, yeah, well, you can follow me on Instagram at JZ Fish, Jason Zone Fisher. Zone's my real middle name, so J-Z-F-I-S-H. Um, and then I'm also right now, amongst my many crazy jobs and adventures, I'm the Pizza Hut All-American. Pizza Hut is the official pizza of the NCAA, and with that, they name me the All-American. They're sending me to every single NCAA championship uh, this year. I was at the college football championship. I'll be at the final four. But in addition to those, I've already been to field hockey, water polo, women's soccer, men's soccer, women's volleyball. I'm going to do every single sport, over 30 of them in total. It's pretty cool. And all of my journeys are I share on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at PH All American, PH for Pizza Hut. So that's a pretty fun journey too. You can follow me. And then you can see most of my work that I've done in my career um, on my website, which is just my name, jasonzonefisher.com. Um, and I, there's even a way to contact me that way too. If you have any questions or want to reach out, I'm always happy to, to chat and, uh, share many more of my crazy experiences, stories, and adventures because, uh, every day with me is different. There's never a dull moment and I'm always up to something pretty crazy and pretty fun. Awesome. Well, thanks for the time. I know we talked for a while, but, uh, it's interesting. I'd be curious for us to sit down and do this in 60 years. 60. Uh, yeah, wow. All right. still alive in 92. Okay. Uh, you might be 93. Um, I'll sca- I am busy um, the Tuesday of that week in 60 years. It out? Yeah, if we could just get that marked down. I'll make sure. Okay, go we'll Wednesday. When- uh, Wednesday is pretty clear for me, yeah. the 92. So let's plan on that. And Great. That'll be a lot of fun. We'll reminisce about the, the good old days of uh, TV. Wow, yeah. I'm honored to be asked back in 60 years. Thank you so much. Maybe we'll do it in six months instead. All right, yeah, Uh, deal. Thank you again. I appreciate it. I think your journey is just, it's interesting. It's fascinating. And I think there's a lot of good tools, but also stories and substance that uh, I'll take with me and hopefully... You know, the one or two people that listen to this will also with them. <laughs> That's right. Both of our moms. Yeah. So, uh, th- hi, mom. Thank you for listening. I uh, hope you learned something here today. Thanks again to Jason for coming on the Beyond the Surface podcast. So many takeaways from Jason. As I said, he's a unique guy. Uh, and you could hear at the end here just his gratitude for being able to do what he loves doing and being able to live the life that he wants to live. A couple other takeaways for me. Number one, his ability to take risk and be unafraid to ask people or to put himself out there, I think has really helped him in his career. His drive, his desire, and not handling failure and letting failure stop him, but keep moving forward and keep finding a way to connect with people. The connecting with people was something that was paramount to our conversation today. The fact that he keeps an Excel spreadsheet with everyone that he talks to and what he talks to them about and how that person may help him in the future is pretty fascinating. And I think from a networking standpoint, Jason is as good as anyone that I know in his ability to connect with people. He also just pursued his passion and didn't worry about what the job was or what the job wasn't, but said, hey, I'm going to pursue my passion and also adding purpose to that passion with the sense of, I love making people laugh. I love entertaining people. I think there's a lot of really strong points that can be made from that. Also, just his desire to stay active, like just constantly pursuing things and being fearless in his pursuit is a big takeaway for me. And I was really blown away by the idea that he constantly journals and has been journaling and writing things down and capturing moments from a young age. I think if all of us captured those moments and really wrote them down, how tangible would those moments be for us in our lives? So thanks again to Jason for coming on. 
If you haven't checked out his documentary, please do that. Swing State is a great documentary with another friend of ours, John Intrader. And I encourage all of you to also follow Jason on Twitter. So thanks again for listening to Beyond the Surface. If you like this conversation, please pass it along to a friend. Uh, I've had a lot of people come up to me and say that they're enjoying these conversations. That means the world to me. So I appreciate all of you for listening. And thanks to all the guests for coming on. And I will talk to you guys again real soon.